Thank you. Please be seated. When we turn back to the Gospel of John this morning, we are in John chapter 14. If you're visiting with us, we're in a study of the upper room. We come back to these blessed hours with Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. He's going to be crucified on the, on the morrow. He spends these uh, hours with his disciples, telling them many great and precious truths, lest their hearts be troubled, that they might be able to continue uh, to take courage and uh, receive the instructions on how they are to continue this ministry of his after he is raised. So we pick up now um, in John 14. Um, I, I, I will uh, go back here to verse 10 for context, but we're going to be considering together verses uh, 12 to 17 today. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Let us pray together once more. Our Father in heaven, we pray that that same Spirit who is called here the Spirit of truth would reveal the truth of these words to us and to every heart. Lead us in that way everlasting. Lead us in the paths of righteousness, we pray, for your own namesake. Amen. Well, dear brothers and sisters, we wonder, can it be so that we can do greater works than Jesus? Is that not what it says? That whatever we ask, Jesus will do? If we ask anything in his name, that it is ours? Should we name it and claim it? I'm sure this is not a theoretical question for some here this morning. You've longed to see some miracle, some healing, some supernatural intervention in your life, and you've sought the Lord for it urgently, and you'd like to know. It says, he who believes in me, the works that I do he will do, and greater works than these he will do also. Is that the problem, you ask? Is the problem that you don't have enough faith? Is it perhaps not enough love or keeping the commandments? As he goes on to say, should we read, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Well, on the one hand, the passage, you see, seems to offer us 
the greatest confidence and encouragement. On the other hand, the passage seems to mock us, even to discourage us, if not condemn us. Now, some of you have been on that up-and-down roller coaster in Pentecostal churches, I know, where that miracle seems so near on a Sunday, you can taste it. And the pain is so overwhelming on Monday that you wished for the end. And maybe you, you, you hear of others healed, and you think, oh, Lord, what about me? What's wrong with me? Some of us read the excellent book by Michael Green called Evangelism in the Early Church. I didn't realize until we got into it that everyone else was reading the second edition. I was reading the first edition. Now, their edition had several changes because in more recent times, Green had gotten involved in the charismatic movement and was writing in favor of that. Um, if you've ever read his book, I Believe in the Holy Spirit, you'll know that he quotes several remarkable instances of healing in Africa at large meetings in Malawi in the 1970s. And, you know, you read these things and you say, oh, Lord, could you just do this little thing for me? Um, you might not have read the report of the missionary doctor who was at the same place at the same time, who worked there actually for many years. He, he read Green's book and he said, my own impression is that there is nothing to these healings and that the initial popularity of these meetings decreases as the actual results become known. I have not come across a single case of undoubted cure provided by medical approved rather by medical examination. Costi Hinn is Benny Hinn's nephew, and he worked at his uncle's healing ministry for a few years in Florida. He, he finally realized that there were no works like Christ's works, certainly nothing greater than Christ's works going on. In his videos, he gives a very respectful and thoughtful analysis of what he thinks is happening. But what are we to believe is my question to you as we begin. How are we to read these words? On the one hand, we know that the Lord can heal. He does heal. Uh, on the other hand, who can say in the words of this passage that they've done greater works than Jesus? And there is so much fraud. And what should we be expecting? Should we be expecting everything or, or nothing? Let's consider with you what this passage means and then... I'd like to teach you how to do greater works than Jesus. And then we'll have lunch. <laughs> First, what does this passage mean? I, I, I read one preacher who had researched it, and he said, of the 20 or more commentaries and sermons that I read on these verses, not one even mentions that there are any difficulties. I have over two dozen books on prayer on my shelf, and only one acknowledges that these are difficult verses, but he doesn't answer my questions. Well, uh, we've, got to, we've got to figure this out. We can't just pass by these verses and ignore the problem because we're going to keep on running into this same problem three more times in the next two chapters. We will, we will find very similar verses, not to mention, of course, elsewhere in the Bible. I've, I've done some more research, and I'd like to give you three ways first in which this is interpreted. Please stay with me. The first I've mentioned already. It's for those who believe more. It's for those who believe more. Jesus says, 
he who believes in me the great the works that I do he will do also that's clear enough he who believes in me when the Pentecostal movement began at the beginning of the 20th century they said that the reason why the church has not seen these promised miracles for all these centuries is unbelief I don't believe it Luke Skywalker said that is why you fail replied the great Pentecostal master Yoda Plenty of health and wealth preachers write popular books teaching what's called faith healing. The dash in between knows the term, faith healing. They say, people, you need to claim it by faith. When somebody's club foot then is not healed, those cruel false teachers tell the club-footed man he didn't ask it enough faith. Mm. One of my dearest friends who I worked with in Charlotte was totally captive to this healing and on the roller coaster every week. I even went to a vineyard healing meeting with him one night. He said, did you see any healing? No. I did see people, plenty of people, trying to work themselves up enough. Trying to believe enough that they might be one of the ones perhaps rewarded with healing. But the man that I saw there was not doing Jesus' works. And he certainly was not doing works greater than Jesus' It's just a fact. I've got plenty to say, of course, on the biblical reasons for errors and faith healing, but that'll have to wait for another sermon. But just certainly taking this passage at face value, the promise given is doing his works and doing greater works than him. That is what is being promised. Jesus raised the dead. Jesus gave sight to the blind, multitude, multiplied food, walked on water, and so forth. People today are not even doing these works, certainly not greater works. And if we think that this is what it means, well, just go and have a walk across Clater Lake and you'll end up wet but enlightened. This is not what the passage is holding out for us. But let's come to the second way in which it is interpreted. Is it for the apostles? Is it for the apostles? Well, this looks much more hopeful. I mean, these words were not originally spoken to the multitudes, but to the eleven, of course, in the upper room. Jesus is preparing them to take over his work, and undoubtedly, some things that he says in the upper room can only apply to them. Uh, As well, all prophets since Moses are required to give a miraculous sign to prove that they have a word from the Lord, And Jesus does grant these apostles the power to do his mighty works. I mean, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Truly, he says, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. These miraculous works were called the signs of an apostle. And and he did them. And he kept doing them in perseverance. We read later in the letter to the Hebrews about that great salvation which first began to be spoken by the Lord and then was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that is, his disciples. God also bearing witness with both signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So 
clear enough. Of course, if those miracles had been done by their preachers, that would have been a totally different argument. That would say, hey, you know how we've done miracles for you, but that's not what they're saying. They're saying, you know how this message came from those disciples who had been with Jesus, who were his witnesses, with the miracles. And, and we know that it was fulfilled this way. This is not just theory. We read in the book of Acts, so many wonderful miracles. Peter raises Tabitha from the dead. Paul raises Eutychus from the dead, who'd fallen out of the third-story window. We read about a number of extraordinary miracles from their hands. The sick healed, the lame walking. Uh, they, they were doing their master's works. So I think this does explain what's going on in the first part of verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do. Those men did them. They did them. Did they do greater works than him? That's what, that's what the verse goes on to say, and that becomes then more difficult to explain. We still have to deal with the second half of the verse. Greater works than these that he has done, he will do. What, what, what greater works than, than Jesus did could there be? Can somebody name a greater work than what Jesus has done? What does it mean? Well, consider with me. Why would Jesus' miracles be called great at all? What was so great about them? Um, obviously, they revealed great power, but the point of them was, of course, that they, it was, what was so great was what they revealed about Jesus and the effect that they had on, on others who saw them, Right? Uh, Jesus, you notice, just referred to that in the previous verse, verse 11. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe for the sake of the works themselves. Believe for the sake of the works that I am he. The, the greatness of Christ's works was supremely intended to reveal the greatness of the worker. I mean, they were works of compassion, and works of power, yes, but they were supposed to be revealing the greatness of the worker, that this is God incarnate, and it was supposed to have a great effect upon the people who would see them and put their trust in him. And so, you see, uh, this is what comes up again and again in the book of John, especially, about the purpose of these works. John chapter 20, truly Jesus did many other signs, miracles, in the presence of his disciples, which aren't written in the book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. Okay. Healings are cool. Not as cool as heaven. Curing your cold or club foot, wonderful. No offense to you club-footed people. But there is something greater, is there not? Greater than healing that? Something greater that God does in people, in a human life. Maybe he will do it for you today. That one great 
standing miracle, that outstanding miracle of divine power that he refers to has the purpose of all these things anyway. That people should know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they might go from death to eternal life. And so I'll take you to the third way to interpret the passage, which I'm going to interpret it and commend to you. It's not for those who have enough faith. It's not just for the disciples. It's for us. It's for us. Let's look at this passage down more closely. Let's draw it out from the passage. There's an important phrase in verse 12 that I haven't gotten to. In fact, it's not explained even until a little later. Greater works than these, greater works in context than Jesus has done, um, for which the disciples have believed in him. Greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. What's that got to do with it, you say? Just because he's going away? Uh, Well, it's explained in just a a, a few more verses. Um, Skipping down here to verse 16, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he goes on to say, chapter 16, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away for if I don't go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, He will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so this is the connection, which is explained right away. And you'll notice that John has this this habit to to throw something out there. And you think, well, what does that mean? And you have to read on. And they say, oh, now I understand what that meant earlier. It's all all throughout the book. And, And here it is. He just says at this point, because I'm going away, the one who believes in me is going to do greater works than me. What does it matter that you're going away, and what kind of greater works are these? Well, then we have this emphasis again and again that the Holy Spirit is going to come because he goes away. And when the Holy Spirit comes, oh, great things are going to happen in the world. Greater things even than happened in the life of Christ. And this is why these men are going to do greater works than Jesus, because Jesus is going away. But if he goes away, he goes on to say, I will send my spirit. He will come and convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He will be the spirit of truth. Jesus later says in the upper room, he will glorify me, for he'll take of what is mine and declare it to you. Because Jesus goes to the Father, he will send the spirit in power, and then, because of that, they will do greater works. Are you starting to see what's going on? Harry Ironsides writes, quote, Christ's greatest work was revealing the Father, but very few saw in him the revelation of the Father. But go on 50 days later from this. Then, ah, Peter and the rest stand up on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. They preached a crucified and risen Christ. And what happened? 3,000 believed, probably more in one day than in all the three and a half years of our Lord's ministry. When Jesus left the scene committing his gospel to a little group of 11 men in order that they might carry it to the ends of the earth, at the time, the whole world, with the exception of a 
few in Israel, was lost in the dark. But in 300 years, Christianity closed nearly all the temples of the heathen Roman Empire and numbered its converts by the millions. These were the greater works. And down through the centuries, he still carries on this ministry. End quote. Jesus was going away. He was sending the Spirit, as, he go, as he's about to say. That Spirit is going to come, the Spirit of truth, who's going to glorify Jesus, who's going to convict the world and bring them to the Lord, and they will see thousands upon thousands turning from the darkness of paganism or the emptiness of Jewish ritualism to new and everlasting life in Jesus Christ, and their lives are going to be transformed. You remember how we just read in Ephesus how so many people burned the scrolls when they came to figure out how much it was. It was thousands of of pieces of silver, and the the silversmiths are afraid their temples are soon going to be abandoned, and they're going to lose their trade, which, which happened, actually. Such is the power that's about to come into the world. Great power. Power that totally changed my life. Power that totally changed Paul's life, as we read earlier. And if you have to choose which is greater... Delivering someone from sickness or delivering them from spiritual death and judgment unto eternal life and new birth. There is absolutely no question what is a greater work. And God's going to take care of the rest of these problems, by the way, soon enough. But I, I think I should pause here and ask, is this your value system? If you're not a Christian, what do you want from the Lord? Maybe you came here today hoping that it might be a miracle for you. There might be. It may not be the kind that you are expecting. What do you want? What do you want the Lord to do for you? Would you like him to help you a little more enjoy a few more years of this life with a little more comfort? Is that what you're seeking? Uh, the Lord did many wonderful works in that respect. He, he, his hand is not shortened either that he cannot continue to do those things. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying, is that all you want? What, what is burdening you in prayer? God, get me out of the situation I'm into. God, please stop my affliction. Well, isn't there anything greater Do you want just a little more life here? Or do you want life with a capital L and life eternal and to be with him forever? Because that's a greater deal. Which is greater, I ask you? What do you want from Jesus? At one point in his ministry, ten lepers were healed. And only one of them came back and gave glory to the Lord. He was a foreigner. And... Jesus says, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. They were very happy, of course, to be delivered from leprosy. But that one leper was happier by far that he knew the one who had delivered him. And that brought him eternal life. It's a greater thing. I ask you, which is greater? What do you want from the Lord? Oh, and I'll ask the rest of you a question, too. Do you want to do these greater works? 
Because, as I just suggested, this is for us also, he who believes in Jesus. This greater work that Jesus speaks about, you see, has not stopped with the apostles, although it got a good start with them. It still goes on. It goes on through people just like you and me. And Jesus, in, in the same passage, goes on to explain both to them and to us how to carry on that work. He introduces four things, I guess I should say, since he only mentions them briefly, but then he goes on to explain all four of them in the upper room. So he's just throwing this this out at the beginning, and then he will expand upon it later in the verses to come. But here's the second part of the sermon. I won't say second half, because you're already more than finished the first half. But the second part of the sermon is the how-to part, how to do greater works than Jesus. Jesus is giving the how-to. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than he, than these, he will do. That second part, as I mentioned, goes right to us as well. Now, I suppose it, it goes without saying, practically, that, that without believing in Jesus... You're not going to get anywhere. Uh, the rest means nothing. I mean, how can you bring others to eternal life if you don't know it yourself? Still, it's something that parents sometimes get confused about. Well-meaning parents that will maybe bring their kids even to church, drop the kids off at church, hoping that they'll get it some other way. How can you bring eternal life to others if you don't have it yourself? You've got to believe. Whenever this passage is discussed, it seems to me there's too much emphasis on the believing part. Do you have enough faith? And not enough emphasis on the Christ part, the object of our faith. In other words, I don't believe so much in preaching up faith as I do preaching up Jesus. And when he is exalted and people start seeing him, You don't have to urge them. They'll put their hope and trust in him and allegiance in him. It's not believing that does anything. It's believing in Jesus. That's the power. Okay? So, when Jesus uh, is making this comment about going away, you'll notice it's also a reference to where he is going. He just mentioned that earlier. I'm going to my Father, and you should be happy. I'm going to my Father, the Messiah, the Son of David, God and man, now joined forever. He is going to take his seat to reign, to fulfill all that was promised before to the world, to the nations of the world. This is a word of Christ's power and Christ's authority. And it's like those who are... um, elected to Congress in a certain way uh, to serve their district, they have to leave their district. But when they leave their district, they go precisely in order to serve it all the better in Washington, D.C., at the seat of national power to meet the needs of people back home. Well, it's a very poor analogy, of course, because trusting in a politician for what a politician can give is far different from trusting in Jesus in many ways. For Jesus stands at the center of all things. He's the object of all our love and hope and life's purpose and everything else. And so Hudson Taylor, the celebrated missionary to inland China, used to recite this prayer to himself every day. This is more like it. Lord Jesus, 
Make thyself to me a living, bright reality, more present to faith's vision keen than any outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than even the sweetest earthly tie. That was a man who did very great works. And that was his secret, his spiritual secret, as he believed in Jesus. A Jesus more present to him than any other outward object seen, more dear, more intimately nigh than earth's sweetest tie. We must believe in Jesus, the first step of the how-to. Now, it's getting a little close in here, isn't it? You guys losing oxygen? You okay? Do we need to open a window here? Open a door. All right, well, if, if, if we're starting to gasp for air, somebody open the door, okay, or hit the, hit the air conditioning. Thank you. Jesus says, of course, it's a matter of first of he who believes in me. I think it goes without saying. Secondly, he noticed, you notice it says, we must pray in the name of Jesus. That is to say, not just in a magical way, but praying with a view toward his power and purpose and will. Uh, as he explains, in a desire to see God glorified through the Lord Jesus. Verse 13, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Speaking, I think, especially about those greater works that he's just mentioned they would be doing. If you requisition a motorcycle, what's better, a motorcade from the government to take you to the airport, you're not going to get anything. If you requisition a motorcade by the name and the authority of the President of the United States, it's going to be a whole different story. It's a real requisition. The context then is important. And Jesus isn't promising that he'll do any crazy thing you ask as long as you tack on a few words to your prayer in Jesus' name. The context is of these greater works and whatever you ask. And um, we're understanding from such passages that the Lord's will is going to be uh, sovereign in this matter. That is to say, even Jesus prayed in the garden, not as I will, but as you will. So we recognize the Lord is pleased to fulfill our desires and to do the great works that we ask him to do, not always exactly as we would like him to do it. Nevertheless, we engage in great works, and therefore we pray big prayers that his name may be hallowed, his kingdom come, his will done in earth as it is in heaven. And even in the smaller prayers, I can also say by way of application, um, okay, so maybe we're praying for a marriage to be healed. That's a good prayer. But you should pray that God would be glorified through Christ being seen in that marriage. See how that ties it together with the things in the passage. That what you are asking in my name, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. That, 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 that God would be glorified through Christ being seen in that marriage. God's glory is the ultimate goal of that. Um, I read one pastor of many years who uh, wrote this, somewhat surprisingly, I think. Some people ask me to pray for somebody who's at the hospital. I, I ask what should I pray? The person will often look at me dumbfounded, thinking that he be healed, of course. Well, fine. Yet, 
this wise pastor knows that there's often some deeper and more important needs. He writes, healing may not be God's way of being glorified. What does God want to do in this person's heart? Maybe the sickness is to teach the person the brevity of life so that he will begin to live in light of eternity. God may be glorified by teaching the sick person to trust him through his bodily weakness. He may be glorified through the person's joy in Christ as he dies. Our aim in prayer should be that the Father would be glorified in his Son. Not wrong to pray for healing. Don't misunderstand him. He was just saying there's a bigger picture. There's a greater work that may be more important to pray for. Now, perhaps if this whole time, if you've been listening to me and you've been thinking, okay, so if you're saying these greater works have to do with evangelism, sorry, that's just not my gift. The message doesn't really relate to me. But not many of us are gifted evangelists. However, God has gifted you in some way. And your aim in life should be that he would do a great work through that, that Christ would be exalted, God glorified in whatever you are doing. As Paul wrote to the Philippians as he faced possible execution, that whether he would be released or executed, his aim was, quote, that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. This should be the aim of every Christian, and this is the greater work, to exalt Christ in the world, especially unto eternal life. So yes, we're encouraged to ask God to meet our needs, to, to heal our sicknesses. He, he absolutely welcomes us to do so. Don't let me, mis- don't, don't misunderstand me. But at the center of all that we are praying We have in mind God is doing greater works than these. Lord, do your great work through your people. Lord, glorify your name that we need to pray about bringing life to the world and pray expectantly and specifically for that. Do you pray about bringing life to the world specifically and expectantly? Do you read this passage and say, I don't know, I don't understand what he's saying. If I ask, he's going to do it. Um... I tried a Cadillac once, it didn't happen, so maybe I'll just ignore the passage. No, no, no. Um, You're going to do greater works than these. Whatever you ask in my name, I'm going to do it. That the the Father may be glorified in the Son. You see the connection. This is how it's going to happen. You need to pray expectantly in the name of Jesus. All right. So how to do greater works than Jesus? We must believe in Jesus, point one. We must pray in the name of Jesus, point two. We must obediently love Jesus, point three. Seems kind of randomly placed at the moment. He does tie it in later, but he does throw it out. He introduces the thought in verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. We may have some sentimentality about Jesus, but we can't say that we love him if we don't want to do his will, right? We can't say that we love him if we don't want to do his will. And 
taking it in context, if you are not living in obedience to Christ, you're neither going to pray properly nor especially work properly in the world to do these greater things. You can't be disobeying Christ while you pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, use me to do the greater work of spreading your truth by your spirit to those around me. Point one, point two. Because people will see a disconnect in your life and think, if that guy thinks he's a Christian, thanks, but no thanks. The greater work is also hard work. And if you love Jesus, you're going to be lovingly obedient to do it. Great work is often hard work. Thomas Hale and his wife uh, served as missionaries in a remote Nepalese village about 100 miles from Kathmandu. And when he visited churches, he would show them the magnificent slides of where he worked, these beautiful panoramas of the surrounding mountains and even Mount Everest there in the background. And he would be quick to say, those are beautiful views but they do not show the cold, poverty, dirt, or disease. Beauty like that will take you to Nepal. But only love for Christ and obedience to his command to evangelize the world will keep you there. Well said. There is a connection. If we are to do any great works for Christ, we must have a fervent love for him and a devotion to do his will. If you want to do great, great works greater than Jesus, you've got to believe in him. You have to pray in his name. You have to obediently love him. And you must be empowered by his spirit. Verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and be in you. He calls him here the spirit of truth. Goes on to open that up. He's the source of truth. He'll tell you the truth. In fact, apart from the Holy Spirit, no one can even know the truth about their own sinful condition or about the righteousness of God, which we reveal, which we receive by faith in Christ. So, The main work of the Holy Spirit keeps coming up in the upper room. He just introduces him here. But then he'll go on to say, for instance, chapter 15, the Holy Spirit will testify of me, and you also will bear witness. Okay, You testify, but he's going to testify also. Okay, The Spirit of truth is going to come and testify as you testify to the truth. Again, chapter 16, the Lord is going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's going to glorify me. He'll take what of mine. He'll give it to you. And so there is this continuity of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believers to bring salvation to the world. Um, Well, Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And so you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so it happens. Let Let me read to you part of a letter from China, written from China 100 years ago. It reads... This is uh, from, from some missionaries writing back home. A power has come into the church. We cannot control if we would. It is a miracle for stolid, self-righteous John Chinaman 
to go out of his way to confess his sins that no torture of the Yemen could force from him. For a Chinaman to demean himself, to crave, weeping, the prayers of his fellow believers is beyond all human explanation. We are quite overwhelmed at the wonder of it. We read of revivals in Wales and India and our next-door neighbor, Korea. But when the blessing comes down so fully and freely, as it has done these past few days in our midst, it has a new meaning. Perhaps you say it's a sort of religious hysteria. So did some of us when we first heard of the revival. But here we are, about 60 Scottish and Irish Presbyterians who've seen it. All shades of temperament. And much as many of us shrank from it at first. Everyone who has seen and heard what we have, truth comes, when he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, when, when he glorifies Christ, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? These are greater works. Greater works that we continue to see around the world. I quoted a letter from 100 years ago, only that now I might be able to tell you about what God is doing in the world today in our conclusion. It certainly never makes the news. You know, that somebody may possibly have been healed or raised from the dead even in some remote country. Um, That makes the news. But I want to tell you about greater works going on in the world. A few words of encouragement about this. God knows we have enough bad news in the paper. Time for some good news about God's great works. For Jesus said, I, if I am exalted, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Here's uh, historian Mark Knoll writing just a couple years ago about our current state. More than half of all Christian adherents in the whole of the history of the church have been alive in the last hundred years. Okay? More than half of Christians ever have been alive in the last hundred years. Close to half of Christian believers, he writes, who have ever lived are alive right now. Do you realize what's going on? The great works in our day. This past Sunday, he writes, of course, this is, this is just pre-COVID, so, but, but still, it is possible that more Christian believers attended church in China than in all of so-called Christian Europe. This past Sunday, more Anglicans attended church in each, of, in each, that is each individual country, in each of Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania, and Uganda. More Anglicans in each of these countries than did all the Anglicans in Britain and Canada and Episcopalians in the United States combined. The number of Anglicans in church in Nigeria was several times the number of those other African countries. Uh, every single day right now, I, I, can't, I can't quite get my number around this, but I checked it. At least this is as being recorded as the numbers on the roll. I realize there's a lot of things going on in Africa and a lot of false religion. But every single day in sub-Saharan Africa, every single day, 200, excuse me, 20,000 people are coming to faith right now, every day. 
That's greater works. Noel writes, this past Sunday, more Presbyterians were at church in Ghana than Scotland. And more were in congregations of the United Presbyterian Church of Southern Africa than in all the United States. This past Sunday, more people attended one congregation. The Yoyodo Full Gospel Church in Seoul, Korea. Than all the churches of the entire denomination of the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. Okay? More people attended one church in South Korea than the P- all the churches in the PCA in America. Uh, they've, got some, they've got several campuses now. They've got satellite feeds. I'm just saying. Do you know what's going on? You, you see the news. The news is terrible every day. It's depressing, discouraging. What's the world coming to? The spiritual condition of our country is not coming to much. It's true. God is doing great, greater works. This promise, some people will say, uh, you can get your healing if you have enough faith. Some people say, nah, it's just for the apostles. You take it in context... You say it's still happening now. Is Jesus' promise true? You bet. And it's not called the mediocre commission, or the small condition, or the manageable condition. It's an enormous task that continues to rise up before us. And may God have the glory as he is exalted. What do we sing? Exalted o'er all men, exalted o'er all earth. The Lord of hosts with us. May God have glory in people like you and me in this generation doing greater things than these. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, still the nations rage, peoples who are sitting in darkness, and pray that upon them a great light may arise. We are thankful for the spiritual heritage in our nation and for the peace that has brought us, the prosperity which causes us too often to read words like this as though they were promises to make us even richer. We pray that through such great and precious promises, such wide encouragements as our Lord's, that you would continue to challenge lives to bring laborers into your harvest field, to bring us all the courage that we need to be able to do such greater works in our own lives. I also pray for anyone who does not know you, Perhaps something I've said today has stirred a desire to meet you today. I pray that through these very words that you would seal your power. That people would know Christ as their Savior, as the one high and lifted up, as the one who finished his work on the cross and now is 
seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We pray, our Father, that you would glorify your servant, Jesus, unto eternal life by your Spirit. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. <laughs>